So I started the first session by just uh, trying to understand the, under, uh, what we mean by marital intimacy. Again, not speaking uh, merely of sex, but of the whole desire to be with one another. It's important that we uh, do the same as we enter into this topic of children. Uh, and as we think of the more narrow picture, stories of couples navigating the tricky shoals of a healthy sex life with children living in the home are kind of legendary. And uh, we could probably share some stories, some of us, the seasoned among us, that um, would, uh, would be enjoyable, maybe embarrassing. Uh, I'll give a little commercial break here, but the, it's not totally related, but pretty close. The most embarrassing I've ever heard of was my aunt and uncle were at a campground and there was a couple in one of those campers, you know, they fold out, and so the bed is on the out, you know, kind of elevated above the ground. And the couple was enjoying their marital relationship, and it broke loose. And they fell to the ground. Yeah. They never forgot it, I have a feeling. <laughs> Nor could anyone else possibly forget that. They were around. Uh, there's a, we got to have a sense of humor, I guess, and I just, I, I always remember that and say, there's nothing that's ever going to happen to me that's that embarrassing. And it, because if it did, I'd die and go right to God, right there. But can, I, I, the poor people, I have a feeling they got a new camper. No, actually, they probably never camped again. They probably, so that's the end of that. But uh, there can be, as with children in the home, some rather embarrassing moments or interesting moments or something along those lines, but not speaking that way. I'm speaking of the larger desire to be with one another, which again affects uh, the, that physical relationship also. But I want to start here with the twin aspects of sexual union and procreation in meaningful marriage. When I say sexual union... Uh, you, as a Bible believer, have an understanding of that concept. And children, procreation, we know also God's blessing there. We'll come back to that in a moment. But let me narrow in on the idea of meaningful. Does sex and childbirth mean anything? So that's a strange question. Well, our culture's answer is yes and no. I'm going to argue a very irrational yes and no, but let's take two women. They live in a city, and they both head out one morning to fulfill an appointment that they have. They are both six months pregnant. One woman goes to a clinic where she permits a doctor to take the life of her six-month-old child, to kill it. The other woman, six months pregnant, goes to a salon. There she gets a haircut. As she's coming out of the haircut, she opens the front door, and a man comes running in with a gun. And he takes her and violently throws her against a, uh, a, a desk. She falls unconscious to the floor, bleeding. He holds up the salon, runs out. She wakes up in the hospital she will survive, but her baby's died. In the first case, the baby meant nothing. 
Have a child six months pregnant, but it means nothing. Use it for parts if you wish. In the second case, the woman files suit suing this robber for murder because he's taken the life of her precious child. We live in a culture that says, yeah, that makes sense. That's okay. That's the way we want it. If the mother decides this baby means nothing to me, then it means nothing. It was just sex, just a thing growing in her, just to be discarded, doesn't mean anything. But if we want, then it means everything. You've stolen something immensely valuable, and it doesn't even phase me in the least to think of you in prison for 25 years because of how you've harmed me. You see the irrationality of this. If it means something, then it means something all the time. If procreation is meaningful, then it's always meaningful. It can't be if, if the mother wants the child, the baby matters, and if the mother's feelings about that child are different, then the baby does not matter. Sell it for parts. This irrational thinking is where our culture is comfortable. It's a yes and no, a yes or no, depending on what you want to make out of it. It's either meaningful or it's not. It doesn't matter. Well, this irrational reasoning is connected at a much deeper level. This approach to children is simply the fruit of our culture's yet more fundamental and equally irrational approach to sex. In this same city, let's take two other individuals, two men. The one man heads out on a Saturday night alone, and he visits a brothel where there is a woman that services him. As he leaves, he thinks nothing of her. In fact, it is to his benefit, he believes, to think nothing of her. She's nobody. And she shivers with disgust at such a man as she collects his money and they go their way. It means nothing. Then, overlooking that brothel and its blinking lights, on a third-story apartment building right across the street, is a young Christian couple preparing Saturday night to head to church the next morning. They come together in passionate desire for one another, body and soul. They speak erotic words to one another. They revel in the delights of the union that God has gifted them. And they fall into a deep, satisfied, guiltless sleep. Their sexual union that night meant something. It meant a lot. They are deeply in love. Now we live in a culture that says, that's fine. Either way, sex means absolutely nothing if that's what you want it to mean. If you want it to be empty of meaning, that's fine. If you want it to mean something, we'll support that. That's great. It can be one or the other. It's utterly irrational. 
If children mean something, then they always mean something. And if sex means something, then it always means something. Something very deep. Something very meaningful. And what I would do is say, let's not talk to the man who's gone to the brothel. Let's not talk to the woman who's gone to the abortion clinic. If we want to talk about the meaning that sex and procreation have, let's talk about that couple in their apartment room on Saturday night, that believing couple when they welcome a child into their home. That meaning that is there cannot be dismissed. Now, it's not enjoyed by this world, by many in this world, but it means something. And so we know as Christians, even just logically, as we would argue from a standpoint there of maybe natural law or something like that, we know, biblically speaking, that the Creator's resounding yes and yes. Yes, sexuality always means something, something very deep and profound, and yes, children always mean something, something very beautiful. So we have these two ideas that we understand biblically. I'm not going to take time to develop them. In fact, we did this several years ago, but marital union. Genesis 2.24, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. He will hold fast. They will seek to be glued together to continue to build the bond of connection between them. This is the Creator's design. And we talked about in the first session words and how words empower that connection and deepen it and build it. We might add to this the Song of Solomon that speaks about the the beauty and the revelry of this physical union, this union that pictures the union of two souls, speaking words and relating to each other physically in a way that constantly builds that bond of love and connection. It means something. And procreation, Genesis 1.28, God blessed them and God said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. This was the gift of God, bringing to Adam in his isolation Eve, presenting her there as he says, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Joyful word uh, and poetry in celebration. And then together bringing into this world a child made in the image of God. Sex means something and children mean something. Well, let's consider then secondly, what is the proper relationship between marital union and procreation? I think we want to, first of all, uphold both in healthy tension. So as a thesis there, I think your notes have this, as twin aspects of biblical marriage, marital union and procreation must be upheld in healthy tension. Uh, we dare not treat as cheap what God has blessed and given to us for our joy. We cannot treat that as cheap. We cannot treat that as meaningless. And by healthy tension, I mean simply that we must not emphasize one at the expense of the other. I'm going to grab you, hook you here, and pull you into this conversation all the way through to the end. And that is that we do not, cannot tear these two apart. 
They are the package gift of God to a husband and a wife. For instance, we have a couple that says, we do not want to mess up our union by having children. They might not put it in those words. But we want to be very close together. We want to be united together. We do not want children to come between us. There's usually some other agenda there that feeds into that or some experiences that feed into that or whatever. But just uh, speaking of this hypothetical couple, what they're saying is that our union, what God has given us to bring us together is very important, but children are not. That's ripping the two apart, if that's the reason for not having children. A second illustration is a couple's relationship with their children that entirely overwhelms their union. They are not pursuing a bond together. They're not seeking to grow together. They just live for their kids. It's all about the children. And this is often the couple that when the children leave, they look at each other and say, what's the point? We got nothing here. They may not have even realized it, but everything was about the children. This, again, I think is a way of ripping the two apart that God has put together in beautiful union. So I think there's a a tension here, and I don't mean of a negative tension, but I just mean that to maintain the balance of the importance of both of them working together is vital. I would argue, secondly, that union takes first place. The union of the husband and the wife takes first place to, cre- to procreation. So, as twin aspects of biblical marriage, marital union and procreation must be upheld in healthy tension. Second point, however, marital union holds precedent as procreation is not always possible and will come to an earlier end. It's not always possible in that there is infertility. Infertility is suffering. It is not tragedy. It is suffering. It can be deep suffering. It's suffering somewhat similar in some sense of the term with the single that longs to be married and never is. That's suffering. It's not tragedy. It's not the end of the world, or God has treated you now as a second-class citizen. You have a second tier of blessing from God. No, they're not cursed. God is sovereign, and by His grace, a godly couple rests in that grace. In their inability to have children, they either serve God with unique focus, or they adopt children into their home. They don't say this is the end of the world. This is tragic. This is, this is horrible. God doesn't love us or bless us. Of course not. Secondly, age. There's a certain place in time, usually in a woman's 40s, when that couple can no longer have children. She might be free to adopt a child for some years yet to come, but the point remains a season arrives in Christian marriage when a couple's union will no longer produce children. We are not having children to the day of our death, of death at old age. It, just, it doesn't work like that. And so that, that, uh, the union, however, remains. 
the period of childbearing is, is a season and one that might not even be possible for a couple. But the union remains. And that bond is to be built up to the day of our death, to be improving and growing and grow, growing closer and closer. Those are the prayer that I just lifted to God with Beth here in this last session. I don't get this. But we are supposed to grow. God, you've told us to grow closer and closer together and then we're done. You take one of us away. I mean, the only way that works, I mean, logically, wouldn't it make sense? Let's get more and more distant because pretty soon one of us is going to die. This is logically, you know, let's, let's not get too close because then it will hurt to be pulled apart. God is saying get closer and closer, deepening in your love, and then I'll pull you apart. There's only one way that works, that our love for him is deeper yet. So we enter into heaven, one, in great joy without any desire to be back, but the one that's left behind finds a deeper love in God. It's the only way it's possible. So, back to the point. Menopause ends the possibility of procreation. In most cases, it does not end what one Puritan called the season of conjugal felicity. <laughs> you still have the privilege to draw together and want to be one, with one another. One, the anticipation of children. Two, the raising of children. And three, the independence of children. Now, we want to take up and say those three stages of life, anticipating children, with children in the home, once the children have left, none of those stages should be permitted to attack the union that you have and the emphasis on the union, the bond, and the, even in some sense the priority of union to procreation. So I talk about the, the, the tension of maintaining and balancing them both. But there is a possibility, in fact, I would say that often there is a pretty pervasive temptation for us to put procreation higher than union, even though procreation is just a season where union takes us to the end of our days by the grace of God and in His design. Does that make sense? So let's look at those three areas and how procreation can overwhelm the idea of union, and we want to guard against that. First of all, balancing the influence of anticipated children on marital intimacy. So now we're looking at a couple. They've been married. They have not yet had children, though they look forward to that. There's little or nothing to say about the low-level anticipation of newlyweds. Newlyweds anticipate the day when they trust that God will give them a child. But that day's not now, and they know that. And they, it's not possible, perhaps, or something that they would even desire. Just, it's in the future. All right, we leave that there. That's nothing. But the anticipation of children takes on a different force when that young couple comes to the place where they say now, we want children. You see, it's, it's, a, it's a different day. It's not just, yeah, I think that'll happen someday. We look forward to that. We've been married for three months. 
But no, when that couple comes to a place when they say we want children, we long for children, we're ready for children, now we're entering into a new stage. From this stage forward, waiting becomes much harder as they are both ready. But if that passion to have a child is not rightly managed, it can have some deep-seated troubles for their union and indeed even their sexual union. This may be something you've never faced, something that never hit you, but it is something that does influence couples and maybe even just by way of counsel, something for us, I think, to consider. If this couple is not careful, their union can become idolatrously hinged to having children. You see the concern. Union takes a back seat. It's secondary. Now what's primary is we must have children. If that couple then struggles with infertility, their anxiety can grow so powerful that the man, forgive me, but he becomes virtually a sperm donor. And she becomes virtually bipolar. Elated when there's the possibility that I'm pregnant and in utter depression when I find out I'm not. And everything is heightened if she loses a pregnancy. Her depression can become so deep, her husband begins to wonder if he actually loves her. If she actually loves him. Sorry. She grows disinterested in attracting him. She wants a baby, and nothing else will suffice. In the worst scenario, she can even come to the point where having a child is so important, it doesn't appear that it's happening, and she loses all interest in a sexual relationship with her husband. And what's the problem here? The problem here is not that she's suffering. She is suffering. This is a deep wound for a woman, for a husband as well. It's not an easy thing when you long to have children and you cannot. This is suffering. It's hard. But the problem in this relationship is that the desire for a child has become an idolatrous desire, an inordinate desire. And the pursuit of a child is allowed to overwhelm the relationship of the husband and the wife. Now, I, I say this as, I, I want to qualify this, this statement from a man who, and, a, and, my, and Beth, who's, who dealt with infertility for some years. So I'm not saying this callously at all. But what that couple can say is that without children, we have a very unique opportunity to relate sexually with one another. We're never interrupted. There's nobody taking our sleep. There's nobody puking in the room next door when we were just about, you know, yeah, forget that. <laughs> That's not happen. None of that here. And I don't say that lightly because I've been in the middle of the suffering. And I don't know it like those who've spent their whole life longing that way. 
But, my po- but you, you, I say that to, to try to guide us to understand what we can tend to do is lock into what we want and say that if I don't have what I want, I've got nothing. No, you do. You have the union. You have the relationship of husband and wife by the grace of God for as long as he grants that to you. And that should be pursued. So it makes sense. Here's where we can, in anticipation of a child, that can overwhelm the union. And we've got to fight against that. Again, it may not be you or anybody you know, but maybe someday, just by word of counsel, uh, this can be a point of help. So I would say, as, as we worked through seven years of infertility, um, that during that time, by the grace of God and the grace of God alone, we drew closer. We, it did not become a wedge between us. It became, the, there was a deepening of our relationship together because we found delight in one another. And we continued to pursue that delight. And it had a really positive effect when our children left. When they left, we're like, we've done this before, this is great. We, we, we did this for the first seven years of marriage, and we're happy to go back there where the kids are gone. It's, it's not a problem. We love each other. We want to be with each other. We enjoy that time alone. So, um, and I love having the kids home. <laughs> That's just, it's not that we don't want them around, but it's just that it's not a problem. Uh, God allows us to, has allowed us to work on that union and not to allow the anticipation of children to overwhelm it. Moving to another stage, balancing the influence of young children on marital intimacy. Those children in the home, and maybe particularly when they are younger and far more intense. Uh, our kids are maybe broken, but I, I don't think so. I think they're fairly normal. There's a certain place where they really don't want you or need you, and they're still living at home. I mean, they're like telling you, I want my independence. I don't need you to hover over me and watch over me. That's a real different world than when they're mommy, mommy, mommy all day long, right? I mean, that's where they are intensely needing you. That's kind of where I'm primarily focusing here, but infancy. One reason I teach the parenting class is to fight child idolatry. That I... In some ways, I don't want to teach that class. I do it out of principle. Uh, it's, it's challenging. It's dangerous. It's risky. Um, I feel like ill-fitted. Uh, I'm never going to write a book about how to be a great dad. I, don't, I, won't, I can't do that. But I do teach that course because I think child idolatry is a massive issue in our Christian churches. And I don't want to see it become that here by God's grace. So I want to fight the, this imbalance that so naturally turns a couple to over-prioritize the care of their children at the expense of marital intimacy. Union gets set aside as we're caring for these kids. That's normal. But withering intimacy is easily justified because, hey, we're caring for the children. It's the children God gave us. We're stewards as parents, and this is all important. It's not all important. Your marriage is all important along with this. Obviously, it's highly important. But uh, such an orientation, when the children come and to hurt our union as husband and wife, that relationship feeds marital conflict, infidelity, and divorce. 
I'm not saying it has that result every time. I'm saying it feeds in that way because it's dividing the couple. When everything is about the kids, a husband and wife drift apart. They might even come to despise one another. So the kids leave the home and the parents leave each other because there's nothing there. Fighting for the priority of marital intimacy is also a reason that I encourage sleep training in our parenting course. And now I begin to step on some toes, perhaps. Nobody that I'm thinking about, but I just know it's the case. Sleep-deprived couples who are up multiple times every night with newborns for months on end, if not years on end, Parents who are rocking their children to sleep for every nap and every night, I just don't know how it's possible not to be sacrificing marital intimacy. You're being overwhelmed by the hands-on, almost absolute care of this child for so long and so intensely that you're really putting your relationship on hold. You're setting it aside. This problem is multiplied when children are sleeping in the same bed. Everything begins to go even further off kilter. And I realize, please, this is Dan's opinion. This isn't the Bible, it's not God speaking, this is Dan's opinion. And I realize that you can have sex with the child in the bed. I don't want to think about it, never done it, and I'll leave that with you, but... I realize there's probably a way to do it and uh, ways to work around this. I'll leave that with you. This is just Dan's opinion. But I would challenge you or challenge those that you might counsel, how can you prove that you are pursuing marital intimacy in a right, proper balance with raising your children when they are dominating every moment of your life? There is never a moment where they're not two inches away. Now, the objection would often come here, oh, this is just America. There's all kinds of cultures that sleep together as a whole family in one room, let alone one bed. I mean, come on, you're just being American because we have wealth and this kind of thing, and that's all that's about. And I would say, yes, there are families like that that all sleep in one room. God bless them. But a lot of them have one pair of shoes. And a lot of them eat one decent meal a day. Why don't you imitate that then? You got more than one pair of shoes? Do you eat more than once a day? Do you have multiple rooms in your home? We aren't in that world. Infants can learn to fall asleep on their own. It may be really hard work. It can just about drive you crazy. But if you stick with it, they can actually do it. They can learn to sleep in their own bed as well. Disciplined parents can enjoy two to three hours most evenings where they have time to talk and relate to each other as two adults. Some days you would almost want to say two human beings (laughs) compared to the children. Uh, I don't mean that literally, 
But some days you just wonder, is this a kid or is this, you know, some alien from another planet that was sent here to make my life miserable? But when you can get that two to three hours, and we love them to death, right? Get, don't, don't tweet that out. He hates children. No, we love them, but there are times they drive you nuts. And there are times when it's really beautiful to put them to bed. And they sleep, and you can talk uninterrupted from a newborn or a young child. And they can sleep full nights. You can sleep full nights. Pursuing marital intimacy, and yes, indeed, sexually. Not every night. They're going to be throwing up some nights through the night. They're going to not sleep. And the kid that you thought was fixed suddenly isn't. And you've got to rework it all out again and try to get this child back to sleep. This is Dan. Don't think this is God. I'm not saying this is Bible. What I do think is Bible is you put it together, how are you rightly maintaining union and procreation? They're both a package blessing. And to put the children ahead of the union, I think is wrong and unbiblical. So how you work that out, I leave with you. So don't read too much into what I'm saying. And I don't mean to be offensive. But thinking of school-aged children, I'd like to handle this section just by some questions. If you have ch- school-aged children, maybe toddlers in the home, they're at the place where they are sleeping, but you've got kids and all of the hard work that goes into that. Let me ask some questions. Just uh, do some inventory. Is it possible that you are so wrapped up in the lives of your children that you are actually growing apart as a husband and wife? I'd be very concerned if your answer is, I don't know, I never thought about it. If you haven't thought about the fact that your children can compromise your relationship, you're not really thinking very hard. I mean, most of us figure that out sometimes. You can't do anything else. But is it possible that that stewardship is really taking away from your union in a wrong way? Secondly, are your children so dependent upon you that you cannot leave them for a romantic weekend. Couldn't do it because they're so clingy, so needy, so necessary to be with us. We couldn't possibly go away for a night and a day. Now there's moments in life and stages where that's just going to be the way it is. You have a newborn. But ask that question. Are... Are your children so undisciplined in their behavior and untrained in sleep that you cannot leave for a romantic weekend? Not necessarily clingy, but they, you couldn't put them in the care of someone else because this three-year-old's an absolute monster, and I couldn't do that with someone. I, I don't mean to be saying that going away on a romantic weekend is utterly necessary for every couple all the time. You've got to do this. I'm not saying that. But it's a way of getting at the point, sometimes by failing to lead and train our children as not the center of our relationship, what we're actually doing is destroying our relationship. And you're pouring your heart and soul out into caring for them. 
So all you can say is, I'm doing everything that I should do. I'm giving myself away to these children, but you are not giving yourself away to your wife or to your husband. So whether it's a romantic weekend away or a romantic evening, are you able to do that? Are you able to to separate from them in that way that builds you up? Number four, are you at a place or are you headed for the place, moms, when you are finished bearing children and are then largely finished having sex with your husband? I hope that's shocking, but it's sadly not all that uncommon, not as uncommon as it should be among Christian families sometimes. When, when the birth of a couple's last child results in a precipitous drop in sexual relations, that couple has wrongly subordinated procreation to marital union, whether they're thinking about it or not. I'm not talking about age and the slow dissipation of sexual interest. I'm talking about the precipitous drop. We have our children end of us. That's putting the priority on children and missing the priority of the marriage. To hardwire sexual desire to the conception of children, subordinating marital union to procreation is not right. It's not God-honoring. And it needs to be changed. The Song of Solomon describes the relationship of a young couple deeply in love. But I see no reason why the Song of Solomon should serve as a field guide for sexual relationships right up until the last child's born. And then it goes away. Who would argue that biblically? You could not. There's no reason God gave you a wife, He gave you a husband to enjoy lifelong intimacy, as is right for you as a couple where you are in in age. Final question. In the midst of the frenetic pace of raising children, are you making time to pursue intimacy with one another? I'm talking now to you in that home where it is hectic. Raising these kids is hard. It's an all-day slog. Are you focusing on just raising them, or are you focusing on your mate? Do you look forward to the times when you are together? Do you make room for being together? as husband and wife, where the children are not between in some way. I've told this, I say this often by illustration, but um, when our kids were young and in this stage in the home, I would, not nearly enough, but I would occasionally, we'd hire a babysitter who would take four kids uh, and not fear that challenge. <laughs> and, and I would often stand at the door as Beth and I were going out for a dinner out on a Friday night and I'd get the kids all together and I'd say, I am taking your mom away for the night because I love her. And then I would always say to them, I'm taking your mom out tonight because I love you. They probably don't remember that. I don't know if they got anything from it. They couldn't wait till we left so they could play with a babysitter. But what was I saying? The fact that we are working on our union is important 
to the foundation that you have as children in this home. I love your mom. She loves me. That's deeply important for them to see and to understand. Children flourish best when it is clear to them, I'm not the glue of this marriage. My mom and dad love one another. And that's that. Insecurity inflicts children who have the sense that they are at the center of their parents' affections. Everything relies on me, and I can't handle that. They aren't having this rational conversation with themselves, but they sense it emotionally. I'm the glue to this marriage. Mom and dad live for me, and if I went away, they would go away. Now They can't reason through all of that, but that's what they're sensing, and this is what God would never want for a Christian home, but rather a husband and wife that are working on their intimacy and oneness as a couple such that the children are benefited but do not see themselves as the center of the universe. No kid can handle that spot. Only God can be there. And that's why we pursue union. Let me move to uh, grown children or uh, in marital intimacy. That is where the the children are, are gone, are out of the home. There's little to add here, at least for today, but there are at least three significant ways in which imbalance between marital union and procreation can afflict a family where the children are now out of the home. Number one is the departure of the child, the departure of the last child exposes an anemic marital relationship. We've kind of gotten into this. But we've got nothing because we're just raising children. Now when those children leave, we have really nothing. Uh, That's a, a major concern that we want to watch for. The worst case scenario, it's divorce. In the best case, it's time to rebuild and to strive to build up that relationship. But let's not even get there. Second point is the departure of a child from God can overwhelm a couple's joy in one another. It's So this child leaves our home and pursues evil, does not love God as we would want them to. It's right to grieve that child. It's essential to pray, even to fast from sex, so you can pray for that wayward child. It is not right to live in joyless depression that compromises your intimacy as a couple. That child with the two of you is not your identity. God is your identity. And you should be growing in your love and union with one another, not allowing that negative result to put you in a depression and against one another. Thirdly, the departure of a child is replaced with an obsession with that child's children. Grandchildren can become an idolatrous obsession just as easily as children, and the problem's not nearly as great here, but grandchildren can trouble marital intimacy. For instance, the grandmother who has no energy for her husband because she exhausts herself caring each day for her grandchildren. Nothing wrong with that. Can be navigated but it's a question that ought to be asked. Is it possible that what's child idolatry for some has now become grandchild idolatry for us? Uh, 
You've got no time for me, her husband says. All your time's going to the grandkids. Or the couple that spends all of their vacations with the grandchildren coming back to their homes, both of them working full-time toward the end of their working days and killing themselves in their job. But every break, every vacation is always with the grandchildren. You see, these are, these are not major problems as compared to when the kids are with us, but they, they're things we want to watch for. Whatever it is, I trust that this session provides just some food for thought, maybe some fodder for counseling of others. But the main point is that God has called you as a couple to pursue loving intimacy, to celebrate your union, encourage your union, and not permit children, procreation, to overwhelm that agenda in whatever stage of life you find yourself. Now, how you work that out won't be the way that Dan and Beth work it out. But I pray that you'll face it and look at it. Are we growing in intimacy as a couple? Is there any way in which anticipating children, dealing with them in the home, or now that they've left, is there any way in which that is overwhelming our pursuit of love for one another? These are the questions that we want to ask.